This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. I'm Roger. That's Rob. You heard us talking before the news to 10 o'clock with Michael Lumsden from the News Talk 770 uh, 24-hour news center talking about uh, the, this trial that gets underway in our city today. Uh, it is the uh, trial of the accused in the killings uh, that happened in Brentwood a couple of years ago now. Uh, seems like a, a lifetime ago. Well, as uh, Rick Hansen called it at the time, Calgary's worst mass murder. Uh, Matthew DeGroote, who is, uh, I believe, now 24 years old, is uh, facing five counts of first-degree murder. Now, two weeks set aside for the trial. Uh, we'll get a much better idea today of, of where this is all going to go. Uh, you know, as Michael Lumsden alluded to, is there going to be an agreed statement of facts that, indeed, Matthew DeGroote did commit these killings? And uh, it's all going to come down to the question of his mental state. It, um, that would certainly change the scope of the trial, and, and maybe then uh, those in attendance would be uh, spared a lot of the gruesome details about what happened in that house if the Crown is not trying to prove that he did this. But at the same time, if the Crown is trying to prove that uh, he is of fit mind, is fit to stand trial, is fit to be committed to these crimes, how do they go about proving it? Certainly the defense are going to call a lot of witnesses who are going to speak to his his mental state, uh, whether or not he was undergoing some kind of psychotic episode. And does it simply fall to the Crown to counter that, or, or what, what do they produce uh, because again, as you know, as Michael said, this is not a jury trial. You know, so the the images or the you know the, the descriptions of these people or the descriptions of the crime scene those can carry emotional weight. That that would seem to be much less of a factor here. Uh, the focus right now, Rob, you're right, is is on the families. Um, as we wait for more information to come out, more facts to present themselves, we needn't necessarily speculate. But we can certainly uh, try to respect and understand the journey that these families have been through over the past couple of years. Jill Croteau joins us right now from uh, Global News. Uh, Jill, welcome to the show. Good morning. So this is, uh, I guess, a a day that's been marked on the calendar for quite some time that we've all known is coming. Um, And then you have done some some outstanding reporting uh, in talking to the families over the past little while. Um, What's your sense of things today? I mean, I'm feeling for them. I'm, you know, it's it's any reporter will tell you that, you know, that we should be sort of neutral and, and unbiased and sort of detached from the, the, the emotions, you know, when we meet with these families. But my heart's breaking for them today because I've shared a lot of time, a lot of tears, um, and they've been really raw and open and honest with me throughout this journey, you know, that we've been sharing time together. And I can't help but feel for them because we talked about it, not in explicit details, um, but we talked about, you know, how are you going to be feeling? It's, it's ridden with anxiety. And these people are, are just so devastated. And, and they know going in, I mean, how do you prepare yourself for something like this? But they know going in, you know what, whatever the outcome, you know, as cliche as it sounds, it's not going to bring our kids back. There isn't going to be this sort of overarching sense of closure that, oh, we can finally breathe now. Nothing, nothing will ever replace what they lost that day. I imagine the, these families probably didn't really know each other before this this horrible tragedy. What what kind of connection or bond has has formed since then? I mean, that's what's been so extraordinary. I mean, if you can believe it, this murder happened two years ago, and for the past two years, every two weeks, they've been meeting to lean on each other, to in a sense counsel one another. I mean, it's it's 
they have they're there in a room you know in a counselor space under the guidance of, of a psychiatrist who has sort of volunteered her time so graciously to sort of help these families navigate through all of this and they have created almost a family you know, um, and that because that was sort of the caveat when we spoke about doing these stories. It's like, you know what, listen, we can't do one or two or three of you. It's all or nothing. It has to be all of you. And they were just like, absolutely, that resonated with them. Like, we can't do this without one another. So, I mean, the, the bond that they have shared and have come to to share over these past two years has been like nothing that any of us could ever experience or even really describe. They're not, you know, they talk about they're not lucky to have each other um, because nobody wants to be in this kind of forced situation, but they certainly don't take it for granted. You know, Jill, as we get further away from the event that, that brought them all together, it seems to me that they can kind of you know, heal more and more, right? Have this have this progression that that, uh, that brings them, I don't know, improvement, if you just forgive the term. Uh, except it leads up to this event now, which is the trial, where we're now completely have to refocus right. and, and, and bring all that back. Uh, is there any sense of how they prepared themselves for this uh, today and these, these coming weeks? I mean, they didn't. That was, I mean, to put it bluntly, they didn't prepare because they didn't know what to do. Right. They didn't know how, I, I mean, they, they know that their emotions are going to catch them off guard. You know, you're going to hear something in court that is just going to make you make you fold over in sadness, or you're going to hear something that is going to enrage you, you know, because there's such a range of emotions. They feel ripped off. They feel that their kids got cheated out of life. So, of course, that holds weight and that comes with anger. And they know that these emotions can come like on a hair trigger. So they, they, they just sort of fall into it and give into it and, and they don't really prepare. They, they, they simply can't. I mean, these are normal, average, ordinary families who have never really even dealt with the court system, the justice system, none of this. So this is all very new to them. I mean, I just think that they're preparing in, in that way, you know, like what is our role here? And uh, I know that they, you know, share this joint uh, statement with the media, you know, because they worry about that. They think, are we going to be followed out of court? Like, how how are we going to come across? And a lot of it is that when you're dealing with something so highly emotional, they didn't want to be coming out of the courtroom and sort of captured in this moment of a snap reaction. They wanted to sort of be intentional, purposeful, and meaningful with the things that they have to share so publicly. Now, today, there, there was no mention made of, of Matthew DeGroot. I, I wonder if in any of your conversations with, with them, did, did that name come up? Do, do they talk about him? Do, do they have any sort of feelings, hatred toward him? No. I mean, I talk a lot about this, this anger and this grief. And, I mean, a lot of it is there wasn't even a comfortability to speak his name to say his name out loud. You know, I would refer to him when I would talk about him off camera, you know, as the accused because they're dealing with what they're dealing with and they want their kids and their memories and the way that they lived to be held to such a standard and to be the priority of all of this. And really it was, there There was just no place for that name um, 
to be in our coverage, especially at a time like this when, you know, uh, I mean, Matthew's name is, is everywhere now because, I mean, he's at the center of this trial. But it's sort of like they just want to keep pulling back and be like, let's remember about what happened that day, what was taken from us that day, the gravity right. of what that holds. Well, and it's, and it's one of those things, Joe, where we kind of, we defer to them. I mean, if, if any of the family members wanted to make a point of, of, calling out Matthew DeGrude by name or pointing a finger and saying, that's the person who took my loved one from me. If, if they wanted to make it about him, as, as we've seen other families do in other murder cases elsewhere in the country. I mean, the, you know, the Bernardo trial and, and the families of the victims, they, they come to mind as an example of that. I, I, I suppose right. that, 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 would be, that would be their right. Absolutely. I mean, and that's why they're so, I mean, that's why I'm so struck by their poise and their dignity and their grace. I mean, they are grieving for something unimaginable that a lot of parents don't even want to mentally just even go there or think about this. But while they're balancing all this emotions, they still have the sense to be like, you know what, let's just carry on with the memories of our kids. You know, they're, uh, they're not interested in, you know, condemning Matthew or slamming him or, or even really talking about him. And that's sort of, they, they've all sort of taken a page from one another. I mean, they're all five families. They're all united on this front. It's sort of like, you know, we don't want anything to sort of trump what our kids meant to us. And that includes even just talking about him. There will be a result from this uh, from this trial. Um, do you get the sense that there can be no, you know, nothing but dissatisfaction from from some of the families? I mean, let me let me ask the question again, Jill, in this other context, because there are a lot of people who are texting us and, and just expressing tremendous anger, just like there was tremendous anger at the time, and they feel that that particularly in this country, uh, no sentence will be justifiable, particularly if it's this NCR uh, determination. Right, right, and and because it was so senseless. You know, it was just sort of like, I mean, they don't want to consider it wrong place, wrong time, but they think about, you know, these five kids who really didn't really have a connection with one another, uh, with the exception of Josh and Zach. But, I mean, all strangers. I mean, there was no motivating sort of reason for this to have happened on any side, on on any scope of any of this. So they think about that and they think like... How did, how did this even happen? And sort of they get consumed with, like, why why was Katie at that party that day? Why did Jordan, you know, why was he living at that house? You know, all, all these whys. And I think that they've come to terms with the fact that they're never going to find out why. And no reasoning is ever going to be satisfactory enough for them. I mean, how do you explain something like this, that just, just the scope of what had happened that day at that house party. So, I mean, they're, they're, they just don't have the room, the place to be angry. And, and they know that, like I was saying, you know, earlier in our conversations, they know that no outcome is going to make any difference whatsoever. I mean, they're still grieving no matter what. And do they all plan on, on attending the trial? Um, you know, it's, I, I was looking at the, the, um, the photos that some of the reporters who are covering this court case have captured and sort of just trying to scan to see if everybody is there because I know that some of them had talked to me previously saying, you know what, I, I, I don't know. 
if I'm going to go. Like some of them unequivocally, like they wouldn't miss it for anything. And and but there's been other parents that uh, have been like, I don't know if I even want to go. Is there really anything there for me? Because this kind of proverbial closure that everybody talks about is not going to be there. But then you know, Lawrence's brother Miles says to me, he's like, I I don't want to go, but. I don't want to hear sort of a condensed, sanitized version from a newspaper or a radio clip or a television clip. I want to sort of be privy to all this information on my own. So, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, knowing that he's not going there to feel, you know, better about it or, you know, any resolve from it. But there is that sense of sort of like, I want to be determining my own sort of, version of events and i want to hear it firsthand because there's nothing like hearing being there and you know hearing compared to hearing a regurgitated version after the fact so i mean most of them will be there the 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 one father that said that he wasn't going to be there i noticed that he was there so i think that there's i mean a lot of it is just purely for support for one another I mean, they don't want to be seen as, you know, not being there, sort of standing united in, in, in all of this with the family. So I think that at least at least for this first day, they were all there. And I think that that was, um, I think that they felt that that was important to be there for one another. Now, Jill, in all your years, have you ever covered anything like it? Never. This is bar none the saddest thing I've ever covered. And, um, and I mean, there's been a lot of tears, <laughs> um, you know, even, you know, my photographer, Nate Lewitt, I mean, he has been impacted in ways that we never expected. And, um, I've just been profoundly changed because of this. And I think it, it caught me off guard and it was the most heartbreaking, heart-wrenching thing I've ever had to sort of walk through and and I say that with the utmost respect I mean in no way can I even begin to imagine you know a a flicker of what these parents are experiencing but um you know to to be there and to sort of be sitting across from them and talking to them and sharing with them I mean it took my breath away I mean their bravery their strength was admirable but for me to sort of, you know, I, we invested in this. We invested emotionally in this, and I wanted to. Uh, I wanted these families to know that we are pouring our heart and soul into this, and I don't take this responsibility for granted. And, uh, and, and the hardest part is, I mean, the hardest and most beautiful part of it, I, I guess, if that's even makes sense, but is that we got to know these five kids in a way that I never had before. When you hear about these stories through the eyes of a grandparent, a mom, a dad, a sister, a brother, it's incredible. So I feel like it has been an absolute privilege and honor to get to know these kids, you know, rather than just sort of this little condensed version, um, you know, reading an obituary or, or going to their memorial. You know, as a reporter, to be sort of sitting in this moment with these families has been exceptional. Well, people can see your work. Uh, these pieces are, are posted up at globalnews.ca slash Calgary. Jill, thanks so much for making some time for us here this morning. We really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. All right. That's uh, Jill Croteau, reporter with uh, Global Calgary. Again, globalnews.ca slash Calgary. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh,
incredibly emotional stuff, and uh, one can only imagine what these families are going through and what the next two weeks are going to be like for them. Yeah, I didn't want to make her uncomfortable on the phone here, but uh, a, a tremendous pat on the back to Jill uh, for telling these stories. Um, listen, a lot in media, right? People follow their uh, their interests in terms of the stories, the types of coverage that they want to do. A really easy example of that is like sports reporters, you know, guys who love the game, so they want to go out there and, and tell the sports stories and stuff like that. Jill has a passion for telling stories about social justice, and if you've watched her on Global News for uh, any uh, length of time, you know that she likes to tell uh, to get to, to get these stories about uh, justice and social justice out there. So uh, for her to undertake this, uh, it, look, it's a tremendous burden. She mentioned how emotional it was for her uh, to gather these stories from all of the families, and uh, I think she's done an admirable job. All right, and by the way, Nancy Hicks, who's, who's down there at the courthouse uh, covering this uh, for Global News, uh, has just uh, sent a word tweeted that, in fact, uh, a, a statement, an agreed statement of facts uh, that DeGroote has, has admitted to uh, stabbing all, all of the... Uh, all five of the victims. So as, uh, those, we were talking about that earlier with Michael Lumsden. So that has been uh, submitted, uh, that the victims were all stabbed um, around 1.15 in the morning, uh, April 15th, 2014. So as expected, this is not going to be a, a case about whether Matthew DeGroote uh, stabbed these and murdered or killed these, the, these, uh, these five people, but whether he was of the right state of mind in the sense that can we convict him of these crimes or is he not criminally responsible uh, as a result of a psychotic episode? So that that's going to be the focus of this trial. All right, we'll take a pause right here and continue. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right, it's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Just a following word uh, out of the courthouse here where they're uh, entering the agreed statement of facts uh, in the Matthew DeGroote case. Uh, again, then, uh, it seems conceding the point that, uh, indeed, he was the one who stabbed these five individuals, and it'll be a question of whether he's criminally responsible for doing so. Uh, there's also more coming out about just how concerned uh, his, his parents, his family were uh, about his, his behavior uh, leading up to the, the, the killings. Um, one of the, the points in the agreed statement of facts is that the parents were so concerned at the time they considered getting him taken in with a mental health warrant. I mean, we, we heard stories at the time about uh, text he was sending his father, as we mentioned earlier, was a Calgary police officer. Uh, that night, uh, Doug DeGroote, as Matthew's father, Doug actually went out to go look for him. Uh, the mother called police that night. Uh, so they were concerned about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, these concerns go back uh, years as well. Um, uh, in the agreed statement of facts, uh, they confirmed that uh, the accused was using cocaine and ecstasy uh, in high school. Um, his parents asked if he was using drugs again. Uh, members of his family noticed some strange uh, activity. Uh, he's posting heavy metal song lyrics, uh, Bible quotes on his social media feeds. Uh, so there's certainly a lot of reason uh, that people were concerned about him. And uh, in the investigation, in the, in the days that uh, that followed the the murder in Brentwood, the murders in Brentwood rather. Um, this is kind of I think we're going to start to see this in the, in the next days as people try to ascertain. Uh, as both sides try to present the mental state that uh, Matthew DeGroote was in on the day of the killing. So in order you know, to speak to everybody who might have had an interaction with him that day uh, to, to figure out you know, what his frame of mind was. But it does change the tone of the trial. And, and just wonder then, I mean, uh, the Crown going into this, is this what they anticipate? Or does it throw part of their case out the window? Because do, do, do they prepare for this trial thinking, okay, we need to describe in great detail the crime scene, the timeline of the murders, what happened in the house, 
and how the evidence ties back to, to Matthew DeGroot? Or do they go into this thinking that they're probably going to concede that point and we need to now focus on proving his, his mental state? Because now it seems that in any any evidence related to the crime scene or to say that, you know, his fingerprints were on the knife or there was blood on his clothes is, is all kind of a moot point. And so and any reference to that, I think the defense can just say, look, we, we don't need to go there. We, we've already conceded that point. Right. So I wonder how it changes the, the scope of this trial. Well, and how everything seems to lead up to the door to that house instead of what happened once inside. Right. I mean, we, we're hearing in this agreed statement of facts, too, I mean, that, that his supervisors at the Safeway where he worked uh, were indicating that Matthew DeGree became very paranoid, uh, believed that people were spreading rumors about him. He sent text messages to his father uh, that said, uh, or sent text messages rather saying his father didn't abuse him, that he's not uh, a homosexual, he's not racist, uh, several uh, uh, other indications that he was quite paranoid. Um, so, I mean, if we are to ascertain anything from the exercise of going through this trial, it should be to answer the questions why. When we're talking to Jill Croteau in this half hour about this crime and, you know, whether she'd seen anything like it before. Look, we, we know that there's there was another horrific murder, uh, inexplicably horrific murder that happened that year. And when we go to that trial, you know, we might get some answers. We might get some some idea about what happened and why it happened. But right now we are, we are absolutely lost in this current trial. We have no idea why these five beautiful lives were taken from us uh, with, you know, uh, without any explanation. So if we can ascertain anything from this trial, I hope it satisfies some of those questions. What happened with Matthew DeGroote? Well, and as we understand, I mean, he'd been invited to that party, but what went on inside that house? Because uh, again, and I recall neighbors saying, you know, this wasn't some kind of loud party that, you know, there were people and loud music. It wasn't like that. So what did happen in that house? And, and maybe we'll never know. Uh, so the trial getting underway today, this uh, just unfolding as we speak. We'll keep you updated uh, through the day. we got a break here for the bottom of the hour news, though. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Happy lunch, friends and neighbors. I'm Roger. That's Rob. We're going to talk about the Olympics in this half hour of the program. Uh, an athletic competition, Rob, whose uh, best before date has passed. Well, look, I mean, we've talked about the, the many problems around the Olympics, just how, how big it's become, how much money these, these countries lose on hosting the Olympics. Uh, so we certainly covered it from, from that perspective. And, and why poor countries uh, feel as though they, they need to host the Olympics because uh, it ends up, I think, negatively impacting uh, people in, in a lot of different ways. And uh, I think we're, we're seeing all of that. But, but on top of all of that, that we would have anyway with a country like uh, Brazil hosting the Olympics, we've now got right now uh, the very real concerns over Zika virus. And it seems the more we know about Zika virus, the, the more concerned health authorities are, are getting. So if, if Brazil is kind of at the center of this, this outbreak, and we've got an influx of, of visitors coming to Brazil and then leaving Brazil, going back to their home countries. Do we risk um, exacerbating the, the Zika situation? Let's get to our guest right away. This is Professor Amir Adaran, who is uh, with the Faculties of Law and Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Amir, welcome to the program. Thanks, gentlemen. So uh, let's just get into this whole Zika thing. First of all, I mean, we, we, we covered the Zika outbreak when it had first occurred. And I think there was some sort of medical contention that, hey, maybe this one's not something we need to be too, too freaked out about. Where does it stand now? 
Well, it has grown. I don't know when you last covered it, but, um, you know, uh, case after case is being reported um, in various countries uh, so far, mostly in Latin America. But, you know, the the horse has somewhat bolted the barn and um, Zika is now being transmitted other places as well. It's, it's transmitted mainly by mosquitoes. It can also be transmitted sexually. Um, and that is not something we knew earlier. The sexual transmission is new. What worries me about the Olympics is it creates such unusual travel linkages. You know, it wouldn't normally be the case. You'd have a whole lot of travel between, say, Ethiopia and, and Rio de Janeiro. But in the month and a half of the Olympics and the Paralympics, you're going to have of course, athletes, uh, trainers, support staff, uh, and of course, fans from a place like Ethiopia coming into Rio, could they take this disease back to very poor parts of the world where there just aren't the resources to deal with it? And as we're seeing already in Brazil, what it gives rise to is an epidemic of children born with small heads and extremely severe brain damage. Those are the stakes. And to me, it's not worth risking that, which is not a game at all, just for games, really. That's what the Olympics are. We should, we should postpone the games or perhaps move the games rather than tempt fate. Well, regarding that, that transmission question, but I believe in Canada we've now had at least one confirmed case of, of sexual transmission of this disease, but it doesn't seem to be the, the primary means by which this is being transmitted. So with, without the mosquitoes, we're not talking about people bringing the mosquitoes back to their home country. We're talking about than potentially spreading it sexually. How, how big a risk is that? Well, it, it depends where you are. I mean, in Canada, we live in the freezer. And, you know, we curse it for the few months that it's around, but it actually helps keep us healthy from this kind of thing. Because, as you can appreciate, Rito is in the tropics. The, the species of mosquitoes that live there are different than the ones that drain our blood in the Canadian summer. And our mosquitoes don't seem very good at transmitting Zika. We also are much better protected from mosquitoes. We, you know, we have houses with window screens and that kind of thing. Um, not the case in the slum of Rio de Janeiro or in much of the world where you know, life is just different from Canada. So here in Canada, I would think sexual transmission is, is you know, the way it'll go. But of course, um, most people having sex are, are less promiscuous than a mosquito. So you're not going to see the kind of outbreak in Canada that we're seeing in Brazil. You'll see sporadic, isolated cases here and there for sure, but it will never take off. And um, that's unfortunately not true in other parts of the world. I mean, you know, India has yet to uh, to have much experience with this. South Africa has had a bit, but the rest of Africa not, it seems. What's going to happen when the virus hits those places? And do we want that to happen sooner rather than later? It will, eventually, but by then we might have the, the defenses in place. We might have a vaccine. We might have genetically modified mosquitoes, or maybe Brazil will have succeeded and other places will have succeeded in snuffing it out with different tools. But that's not where we are right now. And so speeding it up doesn't help. Okay, so then, yeah, that, that was kind of going to be my question. Then is the plan to uh, speed up the response to Zika should an outbreak occur? But it, it sounds to me like, like you figure that's beyond possibility. Well, you know, new diseases will always happen. And unless you catch them very early and quarantine very early, 
you're not going to succeed in extinguishing them. And this one will not be extinguished. That's clear. Uh, but to say it won't be extinguished doesn't provide the rationale for pouring gasoline upon a burning fire. And my concern is that because the, the number of travelers to the Olympics is rather large, um, because they come from unusual places that normally don't have a lot of travel of Brazil, they will spread the disease in the way that the ordinary travelers to Brazil uh, won't. Um, they'll do it quicker. And from a global perspective, that just doesn't help us. You've also been critical of the World Health Organization, which, I mean, separate from the Olympics, has has talked about the importance of, of addressing uh, the Zika virus outbreak. But yet then when it comes to the Olympics, they almost seem to be capitulating to the uh, IOC. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, they're in a terrible conflict of interest, actually. And and I don't I don't personally trust the World Health Organization on this question. Um, the reason is they've signed a uh, partnership agreement with the IOC, officially. And if, if you go on to the IOC's website and look around a little, you'll find the photo of uh, the head of the IOC, the president of the IOC, shaking hands with the director general of the World Health Organization, and they're literally hand-in-hand hand clutching the Olympic rings together. Um, so there are links between the organizations, and I think that that makes it uh, problematic for WHO, the conflict of interest, to be in a partnership with the very body you're supposed to be asking the question of, is this safe? It, it's obvious. And uh, some of the messages that have come out of, of WHO have been absolutely inappropriate. Um, WHO's top man for Zika, who happens to be a Canadian, uh, just days after the World Health Organization declared this a public health emergency of international concern, he said this, and I'll read it to you exactly, quote, Brazil is going to have a fantastic Olympics, and it's going to be a successful Olympics. I just wish I was going there. <laughs> now, you can't on the one hand say that this is a public health emergency of international concern, and it needs study and it needs very careful reflection while putting in the top job somebody who says, the Olympics are fantastic, they're going to be successful, I wish I was gone. That just makes no sense. Professor, is there is there a, um, like a precedent for this? Have we seen other Olympic Games where uh, there had been a, a localized outbreak or, or some sort of a disease had been spread because of those unusual travel channels you talk about? Not disease so much, but I mean, the question is here, you know, let's get to what I think actually should be done, which is simply to postpone the Games and see if we can really get Zika under control in Rio. Or if not that, then just move the Games. You know, there are plenty of other cities where you can have perfectly good Olympics without running this risk. And, you know, I'm not recommending Brazil be placed under quarantine and lockdown. You know, that, that's not the goal. But uh, when it comes to the games for which there are facilities in London, Sydney, Athens, Beijing, and uh, you could even carve up the different sports and do them in any number of other places. You could do some in, in Calgary, perhaps. Um, why are we running this risk? Why bother? Wouldn't it be safer just to accept a little delay, not cancel the Olympics? I don't want to cancel them. I want to see them go ahead. But accept a little delay, postpone things, so that we're not running the risk of spreading the disease more than it will already spread. When we know what that means is, you know, babies born with brain damage. 
I mean, do we want this to be the brain damage Olympics? That's the point. So why do you think the, the IOC is so reluctant to, to move the Olympics? If they could still host the event, host it somewhere else, still have all the, the TV numbers and the sponsorships and still make all of their money, why, why would they be so adverse to it? Well, maybe they, they you know can't make all their money. We don't know what their contracts say with those sponsors or the TV networks. They're certainly very resistant, but it is money. That's the point. This is all about money. I mean, the Olympics are a multi-billion dollar event. That's not to say that they're, they're, you know, etched in stone, that they're inevitable or that they're, quote, too big to fail. Uh, that's an illusion. You know, in 1916 and 1940 and 1944, the Olympics weren't just moved. They were canceled because of war. Canceled, totally. So, you know, if you can cancel Olympics because of a danger, you can certainly move them. And, and that's that's happened with other sports. I'm sure you know that Major League Baseball uh, recently moved some games out of Puerto Rico because of Zika. And uh, last year when Ebola was underway in West Africa, that was another you know, uh, real worry. Uh, the Africa Cup of Nations, that football match, it moved. So uh, all I'm saying is let's do as baseball did. Let's do as, as the Africa Cup of Nations did. Let's, if necessary, move. That's it. All right. Uh, not going to happen, though. I think you're resigned to that, are you? <laughs> well, who knows? Right. Right. Who knows? Um, it's, it's not over until the, the flame is lit, until the torch comes into the stadium and the, the flame is lit. And there's always a plan B. There has to be a plan B. You can't, you can't possibly imagine business people as sophisticated as those who run the Olympics not having a plan B. I, I, and if it's not Zika, it could easily be something else. Think of the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. You could have easily had the earthquake toss and turn Los Angeles the day before the Olympics, and you'd have to go to your plan B, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not prepared just to say that the Olympics get their way. Uh, they're too big to fail. That, you know, Coca-Cola, uh, McDonald's, uh, Visa, Toyota... All those sponsors get their way at the expense of um, the health of some people who might be less advantaged than ourselves. What really frightens me is the, uh, you know, the disease getting to a place like Nigeria, like Ethiopia, like Kenya, um, India. Now, these are places with even poorer social conditions in Brazil. We see the birth defects of the children in Brazil. That's going to be a long-term drain on Brazil because those kids will be permanently disabled. What do we think we're doing if we're promoting the spread of that disease in any unnecessary way to places that have even less money, less ability to deal with those poor kids? We are essentially deciding that our pleasure for the Olympics and the the money of those sponsors I named uh, matters more than the health of children. All right, Professor Adaran, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate you joining us here. Thanks for this. Thank you very much. All right. That's uh, Professor Amir Adaran, uh, professor of law and uh, medicine at the University of Ottawa, focuses on, on uh, matters of public health. Uh, and he's not alone. Other, others have, have uh, called for this, too. I mean, the problem is that, okay, maybe uh, the Olympic Games will go off and it'll be fine and uh, Professor Adaran will be proven wrong. But what if he's proven right? right? That, that's the concern that uh, we'll look back uh, a few months after the Olympics and say, well, holy crap, now they've got Zika virus in, in all these African countries. Maybe, uh, maybe we should have postponed the games. Too bad we didn't.
Well, then what do we do at that point? A lot to think about, and we're going to take a quick pause here and do so. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge, weekdays starting at 9.30 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.